Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Christ in Me with Addie, where we seek to live out a John 3.30 life. John 3.30 says he must become greater and greater and I less and less. Let's be real. In today's world, it can seem impossible to live out what the Bible calls us to do. Not only can it be hard to understand sometimes, but finding the time to read the Bible, to understand the Bible, to know the Bible, it can just be overwhelming. So I created this podcast so we could walk alongside each other, share some of our stories and struggles, but also where the Lord is bringing us so that we can encourage one another and stay rooted in his word. It's my prayer that you walk away from each episode saying, I know that that is Christ in me. I know Christ in me. So let's get into today's topic. Hey, Christ in me, friends. So today we are back with the official first episode of 2024. Before I kick off today's topic, I wanted to just share some helpful topics that I've already covered to help you start off the new year on a great foot. So last episode, I talked about how to set godly goals in your new year with sort of 10 spiritual disciplines to help you when setting your goals to kind of give greater focus to some goals that you might have for the new year. If you're looking for a helpful guide on how to set goals, stick to them, and move closer to God in 2024, that would be a great episode for you. I also have an episode titled My Best Bible Study Tips. So if you're needing help with staying more consistent in reading the Bible, um, I would recommend that one. And I also have an episode on prayer called Does Prayer Really Work? And that one helps explain why it's important to make sure that prayer is a part of your daily life lifestyle with God. So um, check those out. And lastly, I have one coming next week on things to look for when trying to find a home church or to attend church regularly. So that is some helpful topics that have already happened and one that is to come. Okay, so now that we've talked about the new year, let's talk about who God is and who he has been over the years. The title of this episode is New Year, Same God, because today we're going to answer the age-old question of whether or not God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. I want to start by saying, yes, God is the only constant. In fact, the same consistent and unchanging God that we know is the entirety of the Bible. So I think too often we kind of look at the Bible as two separate parts, Old and New Testament, instead of just one overall story of redemption. God is the same among each Testament, New and Old. The reason this question surfaces is because with God in the Old Testament, people often characterize him as ruthless, murderous, and wrathful, whereas when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, he seems so gentle, humble, and loving, because people say the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, while the God of the New Testament is the God of love. So it's a fair question to wonder, why does God seem so vastly different in the Old Testament to New? Something to note is that understanding this conversation requires a general idea of both the Old and New Testaments, but also the Bible story as a whole. We can't judge God from one section without understanding the whole story. The Bible has one major theme, and that is that God has been and will always be the God of redemption, who always makes a way for his people. What both the Old and New Testaments reveal are characteristics of the nature of God. 
When we truly read both the Old and New Testaments, it becomes clear that God is not different from one testament to another and that God's wrath and his love are revealed in both of the testaments. New Testament authors consistently claim that God revealed in the Old Testament is the same God who is now revealing himself in and through Jesus Christ. Referring to Jesus as the Word or the Bible, John himself wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 1, 1 through 3. So what that, that verse there is saying, or those three verses I should say, is that God is consistent. God is consi- consistent with Jesus. God is consistent with the Word of God. He's consistent with um, the Bible as an entirety and not just one hemisphere of the Bible to another. Later in that same chapter, John writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, or the Word, has made him known. And that's John 1.18. John's point here is very clear. The God of the Old Testament has taken on flesh and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In this episode, I'm going to explain first God's wrath in the Old Testament and new, and then I'm going to explain God's love in the Old Testament and new. My goal here is to help you see the consistency in God's character and his overall goodness, and that we can just trust him, because I think this question really stems from a lack of trust in God. We want to question his character. We want to question the things that he's done, the things that he's chosen, because it it shows a lack of trust in us. So starting with his wrath throughout the Old Testament, we see God's judgment and wrath poured out on sin. It's important to note that God's judgment and wrath, he doesn't want to pour that out on his people, but he has to pour that out on sin. Because of God's righteousness and holy character, all sin, past, present, and future must be judged. Before we can jump to any conclusions about God, we have to remember that he is the creator. He is the originator. He's the essence of all things good. It's literally his world, and we're just living in it. And he's been gracious enough to grant us choice. Anything that he judges or shows wrath against is to put an end to what is against his goodness. So we have to remember that sin is a direct attack on goodness, and God can't be in the presence of any sin. For example, God has laid out very very clearly in scripture we are to refrain from saying and doing certain things to remain in his goodness or nearness, but sin directly challenges his goodness. Sin is often referred to as rebellion against God. God instructs us not to steal, kill, cheat, etc. He's the author of morality, and when we stray from that morality, we tell God we do not desire his nearness. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. In the Old Testament, the reason there were such strict civil and ceremonial laws 
And if you're not sure what that means, I want you to go back and listen to my episode titled Cherry Picking, where I talk about the different laws of God and why we don't follow some of them as the modern day um, church or as modern day Christians, but why Christians back in the day had to follow those laws. So if you're not familiar with the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws of God, go back and listen to my episode Cherry Picking. But the reason that those strict laws existed is because it was to retain nearness to God. um, And that was just God's original way of retaining nearness to him. We know in the New Testament, God made a better way by sending his son, Jesus. But we'll get to that part soon. So in the Old Testament, we see numerous instances of God's wrath poured out. We see God assisting numerous prophets and warriors in defeating armies of enemies. We see the great flood where God has Noah build the ark and he spares him, but the rest of humanity does not survive. We see the Lord rain down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah and so many others. What we have to remember is that God is patient in bringing his judgment. Consistently, he has given time for repentance without expecting perfection from people. He doesn't expect perfection out of people, which is why he sent the only perfect spotless lamb to take our place, which was Jesus. He recognized that the old laws, the old ways, no one could live up to those laws. So he sent the only one who could to fulfill the law, which was Jesus himself. When he brought his judgment, he spared those with faith but he swept away those who did not believe. Why would God do this? Let's look a little more deeply at the great flood, for example. When God brought the flood against humanity, it's explained um, through the story of Noah and the ark. God explains why Noah was chosen in chapter six, verse nine of Genesis. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Let's notice three things here. He said he was righteous, blameless of the people of his time, and he was faithful. He explains why he put the rest of humanity to death in verse 13. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. In the next few verses, God explains to Noah how to build an ark to survive. This was God's plan to redeem all of humanity. It would be from Noah's lineage that Jesus would eventually come. But before that could happen, Noah, a faithful man, would be spared. I know you're thinking, okay, but why kill everyone else? Doesn't that seem a bit extreme? Were they really that bad? Not a single other person had faith. But God deemed it important for us to know in verse 6 that Noah was the only one blameless among his people of the time. The rest of the world had fallen purely evil. In chapter 7, it says, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Okay, but what about God giving people time to repent? The ark wasn't a secret. People saw Noah building this giant ark right in front of them. Something that I want to be sure to state is I saw um, this trending sort of like Instagram thing that said, uh, when people call you crazy, just remember people also called Noah crazy and then it started raining. There's nowhere in the Bible 
that um, gives us detail that Noah was mocked for building the ark or that Noah tried to warn people. There's actually nothing in the Bible that tells us scripturally that that happened. So we have to be careful not to write into the story. But I think that this is a fair assumption. Noah was building a massive ark that actually required the help of other people as well. So the ark wasn't a secret. Whether or not people chose to believe was on them. We don't really know whether or not Noah warned people, but it did say, it does say in, I believe, the New Testament that Noah was one to share um, the story of God, and he was constantly preaching and teaching. Matthew 24, 37 says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So I actually didn't know that this verse existed. When I was writing this episode, I randomly picked the story of Noah and the flood to expand upon God's wrath. And when I found this verse, I was like, oh my gosh, because here is the New Testament application of God's wrath. When Jesus returns to the earth, as laid out in the book of Revelation, no one will know the day or time. Similarly to the great flood, Jesus will come back and sweep away all those uh, who don't believe. There's many stages to Revelation, which I'm developing that episode soon, but I want to go into greater depth about the stages of the book of Revelation. So that is also coming in a future episode. So carrying on Matthew 24, 35 through 37, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven know. The Son does not know, only the Father knows. When the Son of Man comes, it will be the same as when Noah lived. So here we see such clear and actually word for word clarity that we must always live in righteousness like Noah, doing our best to abstain from sin and upholding faith in order to be among those not destroyed. It was true for the Old Testament situation with the flood, and it's true for our present situation as we live and await the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, I want to be found like Noah. I want to be found living righteously, righteous, righteously, righteousness. I want to be found right with God, and I want to be found blameless before God, and I want to be found with great faith, just like Noah was. I think the reason people believe that the God in the New Testament is without wrath is because we have yet to see the fullness of God's wrath that will be revealed in Jesus's second coming. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation. That is the, the revelation of Jesus will be revealed. God's wrath will be revealed in its fullness when Jesus comes again. We picture Jesus as this dude sitting around teaching children on like a, a hill that's lush with grass and wildflowers, and he's laughing and playing with the kids. And we see him as this really calm, gentle kind of guy with like long hippie hair flowing in the wind, who's holding, you know, this baby little lamb in his arms. And not the Jesus that's described um, coming to fulfill God's wrath in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is how Jesus will appear when he comes back for the second coming. So verse 11 says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. This is referring to Jesus, faithful and true. 
With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is how Jesus will be returning to the earth to fulfill God's wrath. He will not be the Jesus who's around gently. He is the Jesus who's coming back to right every single wrong. And any sin is a wrong, a wronging against God. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to be met with eyes of blazing fire, Jesus. I want to be scooped up by Jesus in his arms and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to be like Noah, found blameless among God. In a way, I think so many read the Old Testament and don't take God serious, that he is capable and has promised the same wrath to those who are against his goodness and, and choose evil. The same fate that fell onto those who witnessed God's wrath in the Old Testament will happen to those today who do not um, choose Christ. We are in God's grace period where he is graciously holding back, sending Jesus to reveal the fullness of his wrath that again will judge all evil, death, murder, injustice, and more to allow others to come to repentance and live like Noah. Unfortunately for some, when, they, when that day comes, they will be ignorant, ignorantly unaware, as I'm sure many were during the time of the flood. One day, they were just living their life however they pleased, and the next day it was all over. Eternal separation from God. But he gives all the opportunity to repent, and it's written that Jesus will not return to bring God's wrath until Matthew 24, 14. It says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So until every single nation has heard the name of Jesus, has heard the gospel, God promises not to send his wrath. So I know a big, um, I guess, combating statement for people who do not believe is like, how do you expect someone in a small village in, you know, somewhere in Africa or something like that? How do you expect them to be saved if they've never heard the name Jesus? But here we see in scripture, the answer to that. Jesus has promised not to return until every kingdom, until the whole world has heard of, of God's kingdom. But again, that exact date, only God knows. Not even Jesus knows that exact date when he will return. That's why once we've heard the gospel, it's important to have faith, to repent, to flee from sin, and to live every day like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. If you're struggling to understand some of the moral decisions of God, or if you find yourself questioning like, well, who is he to define my morality? If you see him as genocidal or selfish and demanding, I want to recommend the book, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God by Paul Copan, I think is how you say his name, Paul C-O-P-A-N. 
We need to understand that Scripture describes those who downplay sin and doubt God as enemies of God. It says in Scripture that they are enemies to the cross of Christ. When we fall weak and give in to sexual immorality, or when we go to that New Year's Eve party and drink just a little bit too much, those are actions against God. He takes them seriously, and His wrath and His anger against sin is not without an opportunity to repent. Philippians 3, 17 through 20 says, Christian brothers, live your lives as I have lived mine. Watch those who live as I have taught you to live. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their stomach. They take pride in things they should be ashamed of. All they think about are the things of this world, and in the end, they will be destroyed. But we are citizens of heaven. Christ, the one who saves from the punishment of sin, will be coming down from heaven again. We are waiting for him to return. This is a warning from Old Testament to New. If you live as an enemy of God in sin, you too will face his wrath. Next, I want to talk about God's love in the Old Testament and new to better explain how his level of love has not changed because it's easy to hear about the wrath and just get really scared of God, but we have to acknowledge that there is no fear in perfect love and we know that perfect love comes from God. So this isn't like a dictatorship where you have to listen to God or else. It's very much a relationship, a healthy relationship with a loving God. So. Through the Old Testament, God is declared to be a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We see this in the Old Testament, for example, in Exodus. God freed the people from enslavement in Egypt. They've been wandering around in the wilderness, but God has been with them, providing manna from the sky and not leaving them abandoned. They travel to Mount Sinai, where God gives the people the Ten Commandments, and Moses presents them on these stone tablets— Moses spent 40 days on the mountaintop with God, and he comes down, you know, after having this amazing, like, spiritual experience with God, he comes down to see the people have already forgotten God. They fashioned a false idol in the form of a golden calf, and they started worshiping in Moses' absence. They started worshiping a false god. Moses descends from the mountain to tell the people about, again, this amazing experience he just had with God to find them already unfaithful and sinning against God. In that moment, God could have, I think the proper term is smote and not smited. God could have smite them, smote them. Um, he could have just like wiped them all out for their unfaithfulness, but spared Noah. But God just delivered them from their enemies fed them each day, all for them to give God a metaphorical middle finger. God could have just wiped them out in his righteous anger. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever helped someone and within moments or days, they turn on you and express no remorse and no gratitude? I have, and it hurts. But luckily, God is not quick to anger like we are sometimes as humans. Scripture says in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, 
The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God explains the seriousness of his wrath, but also that his desire is not to just kill people willy-nilly. He again reminds Moses of his covenant with him through the Ten Commandments that they are not to make idols and accepts Moses' plea on behalf of the people. So when Moses comes down and sees the people worshiping the calf, he's so angry. And then he begs God, please like hold back your wrath, spare them. And God accepts Moses' plea on behalf of the people. And here God showed great mercy kindness, and love to the people who had so quickly turned their backs on him. This is reinforced in Numbers 14, 18 that says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation. Again, here we see his caring nature, but seriousness and punishment for sin. Some say, well, if God truly loves unconditionally, then why is there any punishment at all? For this, think about parents. And I know this is a very common um, sort of way to express this, but thinking about parenting truly helps us understand how God parents us as his children. Parents who never punish their children raise kids with lack of remorse, who are spoiled, selfish, and lack empathy. I once heard somebody say, you know, humans aren't born with a sin nature that's completely constructed by man to get us to conform to religion, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, if you've been around a toddler for longer than like two hours, you will quickly learn that we do in fact have a sin nature because you have to teach a child to share. You have to teach a child not to hit. You have to teach a child to be slow to anger, to be slow to... Um, you know, yelling at another sibling or or anything like that. The, the sin nature is something that you have you have to teach kids the morals of God so that they don't grow up just giving into their sin constantly. The reason parents punish their kids is not because they're vindictive and want to see their kids suffer. No, but because they want to see their their consciousness and their character develop between right and wrong. God being the author of right and wrong punishes to do the same in us. However, a day will come when our chances will have run out and our eternal destiny will be decided on final judgment day when we sit before the throne of the Lord and give an explanation for our lives as stated in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So what that's saying is that there will come a day that'll just be you and God face to face. And he'll say, give me an account for your life. You know, every single sin you ever committed will be known to him. And on that day, your friends who thought God was lame won't be there to, to elbow you and be like, Haha, God's, you know, so dumb. They won't be there to joke with you. 
on that day, the girl on Instagram who tried to tell you about Jesus once through her social media, she won't be there to remind you what she said. It will be just you and God, and he will ask you to explain yourself. Did you follow him or not? It's because of God's great love that we are forewarned of what is to come. We have the opportunity to repent right now. In the Old Testament, that was done through prophets in the Torah. So they had the Torah, which basically gave them the moral character of God, which we know as the first five books of the Old Testament now. But prophets also warned people. God used prophets um, to teach, but also to warn. In the New Testament or present day, it's done through the biblical texts he has left for us, as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that guides us to live in his goodness. So a lot of times people ask, like, why did Jesus have to go back to heaven? Like, why couldn't Jesus be with us here today to continue guiding us and helping us? But the thing is, think if Jesus was alive today. Think of how exclusive that church would be that he teaches in. There wouldn't be enough seats, and he would be um, sort of landlocked to one region. You know, if he was in America, what about people all the way over in Asia? How would they get to hear Jesus's teaching if they couldn't come be a part of his church on earth? So the fact that he actually went to heaven but gave us all the spirit is such a gift. That's even better than Jesus being here as a singular human. He gave us the spirit to keep us on track with his teaching and, and to receive his guidance. So continuing on in the character of God embodying love in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So recognize even people in the Old Testament who were seeing God destroy nations called God merciful and knew he would not destroy those who believed in him. Throughout the Old, throughout the Old Testament, we see God dealing with Israel the same way a loving father deals with a child. When they willfully sinned against him and began to worship idols, God would reprimand them. However, each time he would deliver them once they had repented of their idolatry. This is much the same way God deals with Christians in the New Testament. For example, Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as his son. That's kind of a confusing verse. So I want to read you the Message Bible translation of Hebrews 12, 6. It says, God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training, the normal experience of children. Only responsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Oh, only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off big time, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. I just love that translation because it clearly explains 
that any punishment we receive is actually for our benefit and also to train us in righteousness. In the New Testament, God's loving kindness and mercy are understood even more fully through the fact that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. I think God's love is explained in the New Testament perfectly here in John chapter 4, 7 through 12. It says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Here we read that God is not only the author of morality and goodness, but he is the originator of love. To know him and what Jesus has done for you is to know the fullness of love. When Christians say, I love you to random people, it's not because we're trying to fake anything. It's not like we're trying to exude this fake goodness or this fake care and concern, but because we understand the fullness of which God has called us to love one another in the way that Jesus loves us. Scripture also says there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. And if we truly live as if we are loving thy neighbor, We lay down our life, our needs, our desires to put the needs and and concern of others above ourselves. So I want to talk about God's wrath one more time and kind of tie it into his love now that we've discussed that from Old Testament to New. Should we fear God's wrath as believers? I think we should always be healthfully reverent to God and recognize that he gets to define morality, not us. There are so many in our world today who even I'll reference myself so I don't seem like I'm calling anybody out, but before I was a believer and I was involved in sexual immorality before um, marriage, which I've repented of, and you can hear all about that in my testimony episode, I would say to people, it's okay that I'm doing this with this person before marriage because I love them. So my love is a commitment to them and that's enough. But what I did in saying that is I was defining my own morality, and the truth is, had I held on to that belief up until Judgment Day, it wouldn't have mattered before God. I would have been explaining myself to God like, okay, God, but I I deserve heaven because, yes, I slept with this person, and and yes, you said that that's not okay, but but I love them, so I, I thought it was okay. And you know what he would have said to me in that moment? That's not what I've said to you from the very beginning. From the very beginning, I've said, flee from sexual immorality. You chose your own beliefs and desires over me. While he loves us, the way we picture sexual immorality or the way we picture gossip or, or drunkenness won't matter when we're giving an account for our lives and how we followed, how he pictures those things and whether we obeyed him or not. Verses 16 through 19 go on to say, We know how much God loves us. 
and we have put our trust in love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him in confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and it shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love when we love each other because he loved us first. This passage perfectly explains why we do not have to fear God or punishment if we truly believe in his perfect love. We do not need to be anxious of punishment when we walk well in his ways as his children. It's like as a kid, when I knew I did something wrong and that I would be getting spanked when my dad came home, I knew my dad still loved me, but I also knew that was protocol for me acting out. So it's like, I shouldn't have been surprised sitting there as an anxious ball, you know, on my bed waiting for hours for my dad to get home. So as long as I listened to my parents, I had no reason to be anxious or to fear spanking because I I was doing what I was supposed to. I understand why it's normal to look back on the Old Testament and fear God or or think he's scary, but the thing is God has ultimate power and he's promised that his wrath will not come against us when we flee from sin, when we let him define our morality, and when we repent, when we know we've done things wrong. Because the truth is we will continue to mess up time and time again, but even people in the Old Testament spoke of his mercy. I think we fear more so recognizing that we're powerless before God. But that's why worshiping him is such an act of surrender. We're letting go of fear, accepting perfect love, and recognizing his ultimate power and authority, and also the great mercy and beauty of his redemptive plan through his son, Jesus. What we do have, we may not have power, but what we do have is choice. Will we lead a life like Noah, that is obedient and faithful, or will we choose rebellion and eventual destruction as we continue to downplay the seriousness of God's wrath? He's been and will always be a God of wrath against all wrongs, while also being a God loving enough to make us a way by redeeming us through his son, Jesus, if we only accept him. A final verse that perfectly sums up this episode is Hebrews 13, 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I know this verse may bring about this question. How can God be the same in the Old Testament to new if Jesus wasn't even born yet in the Old Testament? We have to remember Jesus is a part of the Holy Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He himself said, I and the Father are one, and that's John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus is the heart of the entire Bible and therefore also the heart of who God is. Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. I talk about this in my episode, Mary's Point of View, Mary's POV, but there I describe how even Joseph and Mary, with Jesus in the womb, reflect Christ in their lives even before he left the womb, in their character. One scholar, uh, J. Barton Payne, he was a professor of Old Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary. He found 574 verses in the Old Testament that point 
to or describe or reference Jesus. Alfred Endersheim, I hope I'm saying that right, was a Jewish convert, so he converted from Judaism to Christianity, and he was a biblical scholar. He found 456 Old Testament verses that refer to the Messiah or um, his second coming, or in their case, it would have been the first coming if we're looking at Old Testament. So conservatively, if you're trying to just find a, a summed number, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry, which if you're interested in seeing those, I'm going to put a link on this episode. If you're listening through YouTube, it'll be down in like the little comment section. And if you're listening on a podcast platform, same thing. But it has a chart, what I'm sharing, that tells every single biblical prophecy, where it is in the Bible, when it was said, and then where it was fulfilled in Scripture, whether that be several hundreds of years later or just a short distance later. Every single biblical prophecy, messianic prophecy is what they're called, that um, talk about Jesus and then something that he fulfilled. So I'm going to put that below. The chart is so interesting and honestly really encouraging just to see in front of you all that Jesus um fulfilled when the scriptures said that he would. So no, the same Jesus we picture as the loving, gentle lamb in his arms, Jesus, is the same Jesus of the the New Testament, just as God is the same God from Old Testament to New. He has been and will always be the only constant this world will ever know. I hope this episode encouraged you and that you believe in the consistency of God's character and that it helped tie together Old Testament to new, both in who God is, who Jesus is, and why the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is such a gift in our lives. On the next episode of Christ in Me with Addie, we're going to talk about how to find a home church. If you've ever wondered, where do I begin? How do I start? How do I know it's a, a church sound in theology? How do I know um, that it's it's a biblical, biblical Bible-based church? I'm going to break down all of that in next week's episode. So I hope you'll tune in and I'll see you then. Hey!